This is Mariti Russell. Welcome to this week's edition of Inner Self Magazine. Our inner self welcomes your inner self. This week, we reflect on change and the changes that come with aging. And yes, the clock ticks for everyone, no matter your current age. But aging doesn't mean that we're over and done with. Each year, the calendar turns another page, yet we have choices to make as to how we shall move forward, with goals and visions ahead of us, with health as part of our reality, with joy and wonder as part of our day-to-day experience. We launch our inner self travels this week with Jason Redman, who tells us that the only easy day was yesterday. Basically, this says that what's in the past is in the past, and that our challenges will be in the present and the future, no matter our age, our gender, our occupation, etc. We will encounter challenges in life, and sometimes we are ambushed by situations, whether at work, in relationships, with our health, etc. We sometimes get hit over the head with situations that take all of our focus, clarity, intuition, and knowledge to get through. And of course, aging, with its stresses and problems, can sometimes seem like an ambush as well, though it is one that we might be able to see coming, depending on how we've lived our life. The only easy day was yesterday. This article was written by Jason Redman, author of the book Overcome. Tomorrow always will come. It's up to you to be ready for it, to shape it, and make it what it will be. Ambushes don't just happen in combat. In business and life, an ambush is a catastrophic event that leaves physical, emotional, and mental scars. It might be a health crisis, divorce, business failure, life-threatening disease, or horrific accident impacting you or those close to you. But make no mistake, it feels like you've been caught in a nightmare. No relief, no escape, and no hope. Just like an enemy ambush, a life ambush damages almost every system of the body and often results in negative, unproductive responses. If you survive, you're likely physically, mentally, and emotionally wounded, injured, or otherwise incapacitated. You might be facing a medical emergency after you ignored the warning signs, believing you had more time, or could just patch the problem up with short-term fixes. In a business crisis... You may be facing a takeover, a catastrophic failure, or a bankruptcy or lawsuit that threatens your solvency and reputation. Anxiety, shame, grief, anger, and depression overwhelm your ability to take action. You might be alternately caught between wanting to hunker down and hoping it will go away and running right into traps that further ensnare you in the difficulty. Personal and professional relationships may be rife with conflict, chaotic or ineffective communication, and damaged credibility. 
The people around you may feel the impact of your crisis, and they may move toward you or away from you, depending on your condition and response. You may feel like nothing can change, that you're trapped in your circumstances. Many people in life ambushes choose to self-medicate with drugs, alcohol, sex, or other risky behaviors to take off the edge or escape the reality of the crisis, further deepening the sense of self-failure. Worst of all, you may feel empty and worthless, like life has lost its meaning. When you feel overwhelmed, helpless, paralyzed, or crushed, knowing something in your life has been irrevocably changed forever, you are likely in a life ambush. Typical Responses All five senses are on overload in an ambush. In a firefight, smoke or shock may blur vision. In a life ambush, it's the emotional tidal wave you're riding that distorts your vision. Your heart rate is elevated. The emotional blast wave of stress incapacitates movement and clear thought. The noise and chaos make it difficult to hear. Every system in the body shuts down non-essential activity to put all resources into fight-or-flight mode and protect what's left. Because there seems to be no way out, you may feel the need to collapse or seek cover. You may be stunned in disbelief or active in your denial of what's happened. Depending on the life ambush, you may have injuries that require immediate attention, but you feel too overwhelmed or incapacitated to address them. After a loss, denial is a way to keep the full impact of grief away for a while. It allows you to process it incrementally. I experienced this shortly after my battlefield injuries. In the hospital, I tried to convince myself it was all a dream and I was going to wake up any minute and be in my bed back in Iraq. Unfortunately, that wasn't the case. I was in denial. While it might be a normal part of the grieving process, denial only keeps you from making progress. Many people respond to an ambush with blame, lashing out at anyone and everyone within earshot. It's normal to question the roles of everyone involved. However, neither finding someone to blame nor making accusations will get you out of the crisis immediately. People in an ambush will do anything to relieve the pain and pressure, even if it means making the situation worse. When the lawsuit hit us, I started self-medicating by drinking to dull the pain I felt every night as I navigated the nightmare. Unsurprisingly, it didn't work. Alcohol or drugs might seem to take the edge off of a difficult situation, but they can't help you. Resist the urge to spiral down the path of self-medication. You'll just have another problem to solve, as I did. I had to get a grip on that in the winter of 2015. I have strictly limited my consumption of alcohol ever since. One of the worst things I see, and it happens frequently, is people become comfortable wallowing in their misery. You can get all the advice in the world, but the question you still have to face is, 
Am I unable to move or am I unwilling? That's really what it comes down to. If you're unwilling, you've grown comfortable in your misery. Maintaining Perspective You have to maintain perspective as you face each day after an ambush. Your loss, failure, or grief might be profound and paralyzing, but you can hold out hope that you understand the fragility of life better because of your experiences. You have more to offer the world because of what you've survived. It won't be easy, but I can guarantee you'll be stronger. You just have to keep that overcome mindset with each evolution of life. Change happens. Some of it will be good. Some will be bad. Some will be incredibly painful. If you don't overcome every day, the world will overcome you. The only easy day was yesterday. There's a saying in the SEAL teams, the only easy day was yesterday. It doesn't mean that the easy stuff is behind you. It means there's always more challenges ahead. Yesterday only seems easy because of the way you're pushing yourself today. Most people hope to make their lives more comfortable day by day. They want to do things the way they've always done them. What they don't know is that if you're comfortable, you're in danger and likely not ready for the next ambush on the horizon. Comfort is a myth, a temptation. It will only bring you down. The overcome mindset requires perpetual challenge. Resist settling for what's easy. Ask yourself, how do I push myself a little harder? How do I do things just a little better? How can I make one small improvement in one area of my life today? The SEAL teams constantly change our tactics because we know comfort and the status quo are the enemy. At times, we'd step into a situation where what we were doing before didn't work anymore. We had to adapt and change. You can too. If you do it right, you're always pushing, never peaking. You're constantly trying to change. And change sucks. Nobody likes change because change is hard. It takes work and patience, and it's uncomfortable. But that's what ambush survivors do. That's how they overcome. This article was written by Jason Redman, a retired Navy SEAL officer. He is the author of the book, Overcome. Crush Adversity with the Leadership Techniques of America's Toughest Warriors. Visit the Inner Self Market for new attitudes and new possibilities. You'll find inspiring books, wonderful music CDs, audiobooks, card decks, candles, jewelry, gifts, all kinds of wonderful things. Visit us at market.innerself.com. In our society, old things and old people are sometimes considered as no longer valid and of no use. Yet, we all know this is incorrect. Some people collect and cherish antiques, and in some cultures, they still revere and respect their elders. 
There's a lot of wisdom attained through living, and elders are the repository of a lot of experience and knowledge. We can learn from our elders, just as we can learn from history and our ancestors. Earlier civilizations lived a more down-to-earth existence than we do, literally as well as figuratively. Obviously, they didn't fly from country to country, and they didn't communicate via telephones and internet. They didn't have stacks of books in libraries or online to use as resources. And they didn't shop in supermarkets or call ahead for takeout. They lived simply off the land and using the resources native to their locality. And in their lifespan, they accumulated a lot of practical wisdom that they passed down through the generations that came after them. One such teaching is shared with us by Vatsala Sperling in her article, A Season for Everything, The Way Our Ancestors Ate. She shares with us some of the common-sense practices about food consumption that we would be well-served to put into practice in our civilized era. A season for everything, the way our ancestors ate. This article was written by Vatsala Sperling, author of the book The Ayurvedic Reset Diet. Cultures on every continent around the world have a collective memory of a time when their ancestors were hunter-gatherers and lived in the forest as part of nature itself. The Aborigines of Australia, for example, were known to have lived a bucolic hunter-gatherer lifestyle as recently as the early to mid-1800s, until they were forced to relinquish their way of life. Before colonization, the Aborigines were able to live according to their own traditions for over 150,000 years, and the earth provided for all their needs. They lived in it lightly, in complete harmony with the seasons and cycles of nature. The hunter-gatherer lifestyle of the Aborigines was completely dependent on the seasons, which affected the availability of their food. They lived as an integral part of nature and did not think of themselves any different from the plants and the animals in their environment. All the natural resources belonged to nature. No one owned land, cash, or any other personal property. Trusting that nature will provide. These hunter-gatherer tribes so completely trusted nature to provide for all their needs that they never felt the necessity to hunt and gather even an ounce more than what they could eat in one meal. They didn't overeat, hoard, store, process, ferment, preserve, or freeze their foods. They took only what they absolutely needed for survival, fully trusting that nature would provide their next meal. The Aborigines actually spent very little time hunting and gathering. Once they had eaten, they spent the rest of their day conducting elaborate ceremonies to mark seasons, respect their ancestors, and honor rites of passage telling stories, dancing, singing, relaxing, and creating abstract art about their ancestral history and the power of their land. 
They spent their time in quiet contemplation as well as playful interaction with their clan members. They also created rock paintings in their holy sites, describing the stories of creation that they had learned from their elders. This natural, peaceful lifestyle respected the earth and nature, and in their 150,000 years of existence, the Aborigines did not deplete, decimate, or destroy their land. This Aboriginal hunter-gatherer lifestyle had an innate understanding of the Ayurvedic principles of health and well-being. In fact, Ayurveda was their way of life. Settling down in one place. While the ancient Aboriginal tribes were living an idyllic life, totally in tune with nature and her rhythm, farming and animal husbandry practices were beginning in the Indus Valley about 1.7 million years ago, according to the Vedic timeline. People were beginning to settle down in one place, Cultivating land and raising domesticated animals that could be used for agriculture and meat production required that the farmers take ownership of land, remain in one place, and tend to their land and livestock. During these times, people hunted for some of their foods and also did subsistence farming. They tilled small pieces of land, planted crops, vegetables, and fruits native to the region, and raised animals for meat, and labored in their own backyard. Essentially, their piece of land provided for the farmer and his family everything that they needed. Although this small-scale hunting, farming, and animal husbandry was contrary to the hunter-gatherer lifestyle, it was still in tune with nature's rhythms. The farmers had to respect the laws of nature. They couldn't grow apples in summer and squash in winter. Nature, land, and the resources that they had were used, but not exploited. But the population grew, and this lifestyle of hunting and subsistence farming and animal husbandry could not be sustained. To feed the masses, hunting and gathering practices were discontinued, and settled, fixed-plot agriculture and large-scale animal husbandry became the norm. In the present era, this progression is seen firsthand in the South American Shuar tribe in the Amazon jungle, where the reduction of natural habitat has eliminated the hunting-gathering practices, and the subsistence farmer is now a professional farmer growing one type of crop. Harmonious Existence Disrupted Western colonization disrupted the harmonious existence of the Aboriginal hunter-gatherers. Aborigines were considered uncivilized, and anywhere from 90,000 to 2 million of them were killed as Australia was taken over by the British. Over 500 different languages spoken by the Aborigines were wiped out too. Similar events of colonization and decimation of ancient hunter-gatherer cultures have been reported in North, Central, and South America, Africa, and parts of Asia. The ancient way of life that honored and integrated itself with nature has pretty much been wiped out. 
The most outstanding element of the Aboriginal way of life is that they ate according to the season, because indeed there is a season for everything. They ate what grew on their land. Consuming locally growing, fresh, seasonal food was a way of life, and no one had to struggle to do so. Their bodies received wholesome nutrition from live, local, and seasonal foods. They didn't import or hoard food. If a particular fruit was in season, they would feast on it and enjoy this particular bounty of nature as long as it lasted. When the season was over and this fruit was not available anymore, they ate the next food that was available. Because of this practice, the diversity of their diet was controlled by nature, and every meal was natural, fresh, and completely healthy. Nature Prescribed Fasting Fasting was a regular practice among these ancient people and is what nature intends for us modern people as well, because we are also simply a tiny part of the complex, interconnected web of life. It turns out that this is how wild animals live in nature too. They hunt or forage, eat what they are able to get, and in lean times or after a big eating frenzy, they reduce their food intake. In these lean years, the people ate one meal a day. Fasting for extended periods of time is built into their natural rhythm. European settlers started turning the native tribes into farmers and employed slaves to carry out hard labor in the fields and mines, requiring them to work very long hours. Just to get the maximum amount of work done, they fed the tribal people and slaves three meals a day so that they would have enough energy for hard labor. Now, the need for hard physical labor is gone from most of our lives, but the routine of eating three full meals has remained with us. The easy availability of industrially grown and processed foods, electricity, refrigeration, and long work hours all contribute to continuing the habit of three meals a day. Year-Round Availability Industrial farming led to the overproduction and year-round availability of foods that we now experience. New methods of preparation and packaging of ready-to-eat foods have become a boon to supermarkets and city dwellers, and the constant supply of these foods does not depend on the season. Revolutionary industrial and scientific developments created rice varieties that grow and mature in just 90 days, and the farmer can get three crops every year instead of just one. Overproduction means that if the harvested rice is preserved and stored well, it can be available year-round, and thus rice has become a staple food in the country. The same is true of wheat. It's available year-round because of industrial agriculture, transportation, and storage practices. The shelf life of staple and ready-to-eat foods is enhanced using methods and systems developed by the food industry. For better shelf life, the staples depend on the heavy use of chemicals that deter pests and prevent mold. Ready-to-eat or packaged foods, on the other hand, have a very long shelf life because during manufacturing, artificial colors and flavors 
preservatives, and many chemicals are used to enhance taste and appearance. These foods are drowned in sugar, salt, and hydrogenated fats. From cultivation all the way through the mass manufacturing and display process, the supermarket foods are stripped of natural micronutrients, fibers, enzymes, and vitamins. An industrially grown, processed, and packaged food available in the supermarket has a minimum amount of natural nutrients and simply contains calories from sugars and fats. The industrial manufacturing process makes it possible to obtain all types of foods all year round. Every type of food is available in every supermarket in the country and in every country of the world. This is the true expression of globalization. You can buy mangoes in Alaska in the dead of winter. You can buy ice cream in the Sahara, black beans in the Himalayas, and vegetable samosas in the South Pole. The food industry tricks people into believing that they are buying food. In truth, they are spending their hard-earned money on industrially produced goods that are nothing but a compilation of toxic ingredients cooked, packaged, and made to look like food. A city-based lifestyle. A city-based lifestyle also ensures that, though people get tired from their repetitive routine jobs and spending time in traffic, crowds, and noise, they don't get sufficient and good quality physical exercise. Their industrial or desk-bound office jobs don't allow them any time in nature or even exposure to sunlight, and this increases their physical and physiological stress levels. In addition, when people eat the same nutritionally dead food year-round, their body quickly learns that there is no other source of nutrition, and in order to get all the essential nutrients, it begins to depend on the consumption of greater and greater quantities of the same monotonous food. What is lost in quality is replaced with quantity. The modern lifestyle supported by the industrialization of food production is in fact 100% opposite to how our ancestors lived. It has nothing to do with season or locality. It's produced and sold for profit, and it's purchased out of fear of not having food available for the next meal. It's preserved using chemicals, shoved into the fridge and freezer in overcooked, microwaved, baked, fried, refried, heated and reheated a countless number of times. People have to eat a huge amount of food to get the minimum amount of nutrition. For example, the simple carbohydrates available in a slice of bread made from refined flour that contains no fiber are digested so quickly that the released sugars are rapidly absorbed in the bloodstream. And very soon after eating such a slice of bread, we want to eat something more, or we want additional slices of the same bread. Our hunger and need for nutrition are not satisfied by a slice of bread made from ultra-refined white flour. On the other hand, a slice of bread made from unrefined flour has natural fibers that take much longer to digest. As a result, the sugars from digestion of the bread's carbohydrates take much longer to absorb fully in the bloodstream 
and we don't feel hungry soon after eating such a slice of bread. The bottom line of industrial manufacturing of food is profit for the manufacturer and loss of seasonability and local, natural, wholesome food for the consumer. It is not a win-win situation. Can we go back? The question that might come to mind here is, how can we possibly go back to the lifestyle of our hunter-gatherer ancestors? We are sons and daughters of the moment. We have a lifelong habit of eating three meals a day and snacking in between. How can we turn away from a habit so deeply ingrained in the collective culture and psyche of our time? No one can ever go back to the past. This is where Ayurveda can step in to help. The Ayurvedic techniques allow you to start your own program now, in this present moment, to help your body heal. No matter where you are in your life, you can take the following three Ayurvedic principles to heart and practice them. 1. Fast from time to time to reboot your body. 2. Live your life in harmony with nature by eating small amounts of simple foods that grow or can be hunted in season, because indeed there is a season for everything. 3. Combine food sensibly so that your body is better able to draw complete nutrition from the food you eat. This article was written by Vatsala Sperling, the author of the book The Ayurvedic Reset Diet, Radiant Health Through Fasting, Mono Diet, and Smart Food Combining. Visit the Inner Self Market for new attitudes and new possibilities. You'll find inspiring books, wonderful music CDs, audiobooks, card decks, candles, jewelry, gifts, all kinds of wonderful things. Visit us at market.innerself.com. Our modern diet puts us into precarious situations with our health and the health of our bones. Some people just accept that this is just the way it is when you get older. They expect and accept that their bones will become frail, they will shrink, they will become weak. But as we were encouraged earlier in Jason Redmond's article, we have choices as to what actions to take. We don't have to let poor health and weak bones be our story. There are many things to do to enhance our health. Marian Stewart gears us in that direction in her article, How to Build New Bone Naturally. We never have to give up and be helpless in the face of adversity and aging. There is always something we can do. There are years in life that we consider milestones. Hitting 13 years of age and becoming a teenager. 21 and adulthood. And then there are the years that mark off the decades of our existence, somehow gaining more importance and perhaps dread as the numbers get bigger. 30, 40, 50, 60, 70. And then there is reaching the marker of three-quarters of a century of life on Earth. 
This is the benchmark attained by Joyce and Barry Vissell this year. Barry shares his perspective on reaching this milestone. Hi everyone, this is Barry Vissell and this month's column is called Turning 75. All right, this month, May actually, 2021, both Joyce and I turned 75. May 18th for Joyce and May 27th for me. Three quarters of a century. It's a milestone for sure. When I was younger, 75 years old seemed ancient. The house mother in Joyce's dormitory at Hartwick College when we were 18 years old seemed ancient. And she might have been a bit younger than us right now. One of her jobs was to vigilantly watch the young couples returning from their dates by the 10 p.m. curfew to make sure all was appropriate in the little lobby and nothing more than kissing was happening. It was under her watchful eyes that Joyce and I had our first kiss, a kiss that truly blew our minds. And then a minute later, the door opened and her elderly hand grabbed Joyce and pulled her in. They say you are only as old as you think. In some ways, Joyce and I are still those 18-year-old children discovering new ways to love, learning the lessons this world will teach us. If we remain open to learning and discovering, we remain youthful. And yes, the reverse is also true. We become old when we stop wondering at the world or learning new things. Last week, as part of our birthday gift to ourselves, we were in Yosemite National Park, truly one of the most beautiful places on this earth. We biked throughout the valley, stopping to take in the sheer rock walls, the waterfalls in their spring fullness, the dogwoods in full bloom, all the majestic trees, my favorite, the beautiful yellow pines, also called ponderosa pines, over 200 feet high. We explored the banks and beaches of the Merced River and Tenaya Creek, finding our own little power spots to rest or dip for a moment in the frigid water. As long as we touched upon that magic state of wonder, we remained young. We realize it's a moment by moment decision. You can choose at any time to enter that state of wonder. And that would be a youthful moment for you. I will not deny my vulnerability about aging. Sometimes I feel truly scared at what these next few decades may bring and what I will physically or mentally lose. Year by year, I've watched my body slowly lose abilities. I can no longer run. Softball, a real passion of mine, is a thing of the past. I can't carry heavy loads anymore. At the local hardware store, I need to ask someone to help lift the bags of cement into my truck that I used to lift easily. But hey, asking for help 
is a much-needed skill at any age. Many of you know about my passion for the out-of-doors, especially river trips and backpacking. I realize that my fear of the window closing on these kinds of activities sometimes has me scrambling to do as much of these things as I can before I'm forced to let go of them. Joyce loves nature just as much as I do. It's just that she's more at peace, staying home on our beautiful property. But she gives me her blessing to go off a couple of extra times a year on my solo adventures. Then there's our two grandsons, 10-year-old Skye and 4-year-old Owen. I have had to accept my physical limitations more and more. I've gone from actor to director, from rolling around with them on the living room floor to sitting on the couch, challenging them with new games or routines. Grandpa, what should we do next? I not only come away with less bruises, but st it's still a lot of fun. Everyone has a great time, even with Grandpa on the couch. I love tennis, but have had to quit playing with my more competitive and younger friends. Now I can still enjoy tennis, but it's a special kind of tennis with my friend Charlie Bloom. We call it Old Farts Tennis. We have actual strict rules. First, there's no keeping score, except we often call out our favorite score. Love, love. Then, the object of the game is to enjoy hitting the ball, no matter where it ends up going. If we hit the ball back to each other, great. If the ball is not hit right to us, and we have to move fast to get to the ball, we actually get cheered by the other for letting the ball fly by, rather than make some heroic effort which may end up getting us hurt. And if one of us makes an amazing play, like a really great serve or a return, everything stops for a proper celebration. It's another wonder moment. Not long ago, I asked myself what I most wanted in this life. The answer came in the form of a song that I wrote, which someday I hope to record for you all. Here are the words. I only want to love and feel my open heart. I only want to love and feel my open heart. Of all the things I do, this is the highest art. There's always more to do. The world won't stop for me, but I can stop and feel what I most want. I only want to love and see beauty everywhere. The joy it gives to me is far beyond compare. I want to see the light 
that dances in your eyes. I want to hear the song of your heart. This is all I want, just to love. It's what makes me happiest. Loving my beloved Joyce, it makes my heart sing. Loving our children and grandchildren, it just fills me up. Loving the divine helpers, the angels, the great masters and saints, it fills me with gratitude. Then there's the retreats we lead. Even on Zoom throughout the pandemic, I long for those magic moments, often introduced by someone's real vulnerability. And the whole group feels that welling up of goodness, where breathing is a pleasure and love becomes a tangible thing, a noun and a verb, a feeling and a doing, two things joined together in one. And then I know I can love for all the days of my life. This is Barry Vassell. Thank you for listening. God bless. Visit the Inner Self Market for new attitudes and new possibilities. You'll find inspiring books, wonderful music CDs, audiobooks, card decks, candles, jewelry, gifts, all kinds of wonderful things. Visit us at market.innerself.com. Ultimate change or challenge is death. Whether we are facing our own death or the death of a loved one, there are certain practicalities that must be dealt with. One way to make our period of grieving smoother, as well as the grieving of the loved ones who love us, is to make plans ahead of time to streamline the process. Elizabeth Fournier specializes in green burials and shares some insights and some anecdotes about preparing ourselves and our loved ones for the final journey. As Yogi Berra, a great sage of our times, said, It ain't over till it's over. In other words, there's always something else to choose, to do, to conquer, to dream of, to live. No matter the status of our health, our age, employment, relationships, etc., life goes on. It brings joy and wonder, and it brings challenges. As another great legend, John Denver, wrote, Some days are diamonds, some days are stone. Yet it is our choice as to what to do with what is handed to us. With stones, we can pave walkways or build homes. Diamonds we can use as decor for the body, or we can use them to create surgical tools. It's always our choice as to how we deal with each situation, each day. And the wonderful thing about life is that every day we get a do-over. We go to sleep at night and come back in the morning to try and try again. Aging is not the end of the road. As a matter of fact, it can be the beginning of a brand new adventure. This is Marie T. Russell, wishing you enjoyable, insightful reading of this week's issue of Inner Self, and of course, a wonderful, joyful, healthful, and loving week.
We hope you have enjoyed this week's newsletter and its featured articles. For over 30 years, we at Inner Self have shared new attitudes and new possibilities with our readers all over the world. For more inspiration, visit us at InnerSelf.com. Thank you. Visit the Inner Self Market for new attitudes and new possibilities. You'll find inspiring books, wonderful music CDs, audiobooks, card decks, candles, jewelry, gifts, all kinds of wonderful things. Visit us at market.innerself.com.